Good morning. I'm Lori Wiley, and I would ask that you would please stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. From John, chapter 6, verse 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would imagine that all of you have experienced something like this. Uh, You're at someone's house with your spouse, and the question comes up, can you tell us how you met? You know you've had that before. Um, I used to describe it. I quit now. (laughs) I, I just let Brenda tell how we met. Because if I tell how we met, I'm going to leave out some really important details. And uh, she will have to insert, usually right in the middle of my story, to tell the rest, right? Now, you, you have experienced that in a variety of other ways too, right? Uh, a friend and a friend telling the same story. It's from a different perspective. And the best way to understand what really happened is to listen to all the voices, Not just one, but all of them. That's what I love about the Gospels. Routinely, the Gospels speak with different voices through a different window. Some people get all worked up about the fact that they're different and and see in them contradictions. I've, I've never quite seen it that way, though there's some tensions. For the most part, the way I see it is one Gospel writer tells the same story that two others do, And it's a different way of telling the same story. So today, in the Gospel of John, you heard this reading. Now, I'm not going to ask you to go thumbing through your Bible to find the other same stories. But if you were to do that, what you would find out is that the stories are not entirely different at all, but they have different parts. So the longest account of this episode that John tells is in Matthew's gospel. A shorter version is in Mark, because Mark was always short about his versions. Matthew 14, Mark 6, and then we have John. Now, if you were like me, you're curious about why a person told the story the way they did, right? And I'm curious about why John told the story the way he did. Because his story, pardon my disrespect, is rather cryptic, right? It's short. There's stuff left out of it that seems to me to be important. Why do you suppose John would have done that? Well, I don't know. I can't read his mind. But allow me a speculative comment. I wonder if John did that. Because he knew the story had been told with greater detail 
in some of the other Gospels. And they thought it unnecessary to go into all of it. As a matter of fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, John says, you know, if everything Jesus did, and I would add to that, all the details of his life were recorded, there wouldn't be enough books in the whole world to bring it together. So, just me, I think John got to this story, which two other Gospels have, and said, I'm just going to tell the story quickly and get to the main point. But before we do that and get to the main point, I want to remind you of what some of the other Gospels said about this incident. So I'm not going to tell you that this is Matthew and this is Mark, although on occasion that might pop up. I just want to tell you the big story when you put the three of them together. What we know about this story is that there are two huge events that precede it. Jesus walking on the water, two gigantic events that come right before it. One is the death of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, a cousin of Jesus, was killed by Herod. And you probably know that story. It was an awful story. A sinister story. Wickedness was deep within it. While Jesus is away from where John the Baptist is, John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and tell him about it. And it seems that it's right before this incident. But there's something else that was epic that happened right before this incident. It was the feeding of the 5,000. That one in John and the other two Gospels are essentially linked. In other words, when this happened, Jesus has just finished feeding the 5,000 and had just finished hearing about John the Baptist's death. Whenever the feeding of the 5,000 is over, Jesus says to his disciples, get in the boat. But he doesn't get in the boat with them. He says, get in the boat and row to the other side. There's another part of the story I have to wonder about, don't you? First of all, why did he tell them to do that? Second of all, did he tell them he was coming around later? I don't know. He just said, get in the boat. And so off they went on this boat. And in the middle of the night, a severe storm swept through that area, which was very characteristic of that lake. And huge swells were all over the water. They were in a fishing vessel, which probably had a sail and oars, but I would imagine the sails had been brought down, and they were rowing against the water furiously for what seemed to be hours. At three o'clock in the morning, it's an interesting detail, that's when Jesus shows up at 3 a.m., when the storm is at its worst. What had he been doing in, in the meantime? He'd been up in the hills, praying to the Father. Really? When all this is happening? I might ask that question if I was one of his disciples. Or maybe it's just because I know that Jesus was more than they at that time knew. 
that he was truly son of God, that he could see the future, he could predict events, he could see everything. So why did he send them across the water and just stay up there and pray to God the Father? But he did. So as they're rowing uh, in these furious waves, he shows up and uh, in their distress, he walks on the water. Now one of the gospels, Mark in particular, actually says he appeared to pass by them. They were terrified. They thought it was a ghost. Again, question, why pass by? Maybe we could figure that out sometime, but we don't really have the answer. I'll speculate in a minute. He seems to pass by them, and then they scream out, it's a ghost, and he says to them, don't be afraid, it's I. I'm here. And then Matthew tells us that Peter said, well, Lord, if it's really you, call me to come to you on the water. Peter was always brash, making big comments, big statements, bragging about things. And he said, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Peter got out of the boat, started to walk on the water. You know the story. He takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks at the waves that he's been fighting. And he begins to sink. And he cries out to Jesus, Lord, help me. And Jesus reaches out, pulls him up out of the water and said, oh, you of little faith. And then they got in the boat. And when they got in the boat calm. And they immediately get to shore. That's a wonderful story, but near the end of the story, the disciples are amazed by what just happened, as if they shouldn't have been amazed by the 5,000 feeding. They're amazed at what happened because it seems to be a personal rescue of them. They're amazed and say, surely this man is the son of the Most High God. One other bit of the story, at the very end, when Jesus and the disciples reached the shore, there were people waiting for them. And as Jesus walks throughout that town, people hearing about his stories come up to him just so they can touch the hem of his garment. And when they do, they are healed. At this point, the disciples must be upside down with surprise, with joy, with a new revelation. Yeah, this really is the son of the living God. So a couple of observations and questions. The first thing is this. Um, It appears, wouldn't you think? It appears that Jesus was absolutely exhausted from ministry and retreated into the hills. The Son of God, almighty, all-powerful, grieving over the death of John the Baptist and having fed 5,000 people, retreats into the hills. Do you find that interesting? I do. And one of the reasons I find it interesting is this. If Jesus could get exhausted from ministry and needed to retreat, why not us? We do. We somehow go about the busyness of our day, 
and we're exhausted, but we just keep pushing. Because there's so much more to do, so many more demands on our time, and we forget about renewal and retreat. Shouldn't we, like Jesus, who was far more powerful than us, retreat and just pray? There was a book a number of years ago by a really popular pastor that was uh, entitled, Too Busy Not to Pray. Too Busy Not to Pray. We not only need a retreat for rest and rejuvenation, we need a retreat because we need to hear from God about our direction. We can't figure it out on our own. And it seems to me that in prayer, things emerge for us that help us to understand our direction. Second thing I, I notice um, is that the disciples seem to be caught up in the fury of the crowd. Now, I read between the lines a little bit to come to this interpretation because Jesus said to the disciples, before he told them to go away, he turned to them and he said, in effect, these crowds. And he turned to the crowds and he dismissed them. Why did he dismiss them? Because they were calling for him to be a king. It was like, if you can feed 5,000 people, you can be our king. We'll follow you anywhere, you miraculous figure. And Jesus basically said, no, my time hasn't come. You know, Galilee was a hotbed for revolution against Rome. Maybe Jesus reading the environment said, these people could get so worked up about me, as they should, he's son of God, that a revolt will start. And if that happens, I'm outside the lines of my mission, which is to walk slowly and deliberately to the cross. Why does Jesus pass them by? Maybe this. Maybe he wants them to experience overwhelming fear before they discover his presence. Could be. There's another part of this episode that only appears in Mark. And it says... When they thought it was a ghost, they didn't understand that it was Jesus because their hearts were hardened. Hardened? I mean, that sounds like a rather derogatory statement. And sometimes it is a derogatory statement towards the disciples. But in this case, it doesn't appear to be contextually, at least to me. It seems like to me that the Scripture tells us their hearts couldn't take it in. They couldn't understand it yet because their hearts weren't malleable enough to receive it. It reminds me of the statements of John that he makes on occasion. We didn't understand this. They didn't understand this until after the resurrection. And then the eyes of their hearts were open. Peter's story told in Matthew, gives us another window 
into this story and into the notion of faith. He steps into the water, walks for a while, and has to be rescued by Jesus. So a few points of practical application. The first is what I've already made. We need retreats. We need time alone. I have a friend in this congregation that you would know well that um, I believe annually goes to a monastery which is dedicated to complete silence. When you go for a retreat there, you leave your words in your car and you don't speak until you walk off the property. Now, I'm not suggesting you need to go to that monastery, but do you have such a place? A place where you don't speak at all? You just listen? Soren Kierkegaard once said that people think praying is speaking, when actually it's more like silence. Where are your moments of silence for retreat? We live in a noisy world. And sometimes the noise is because of us. We need a retreat. Second, I think like the disciples, and this is conjecture because I conjectured that perhaps Jesus sent them away so they wouldn't get wrapped up in the rousing crowd. But I think like the disciples, sometimes we get caught up in the crowd or maybe get caught up in an agenda. You see, the crowd was right. Jesus was the king. But the crowd was also wrong because they didn't understand what his kingdom meant. Our moral impulse sometimes, right as it may be, can send us in a direction that clearly demonstrates our approach is wrong. We need to be careful of that. Our eagerness to do the right thing might actually eclipse our wisdom about how to apply the truth that we know because we don't see the whole picture. So there's just one word that attaches itself to this, humility. Humility. We don't have it all figured out. And even if we do have that figured out, we could abuse it. So let's be careful. Third thing that I notice uh, and would wish for you to apply with me is that in the difficulty, whatever the difficulty is, just stop for a moment and think about a difficulty that you have walked through or one you're walking through right now. And ask yourself whether or not Jesus seems absent on occasion. Maybe, maybe he's absent on purpose. 
Maybe he's walking by your boat, waiting for you to recognize that he's there. Because we know he's always there. Always. Jesus could have showed up earlier to rescue them. And Jesus had the foresight that he could have told them, no, don't go across that lake. The storm's going to be too bad. Sometimes the storm itself is Jesus. I love the story which I've told before in the Chronicles of Narnia about how the children were on a journey and the darkness of night through cloudiness and fog settled in and they could hardly see where they were going and they were terrified when they found, finally reached their destination and Aslan was there they said to him it was terrifying there were lions on both sides of us roaring through our journey and Aslan said my children that was me I roared here, I roared there to keep you from falling off the precipice. Maybe that's where you are right now. The roar doesn't sound like Jesus, but maybe it is. The storm seems counterintuitive to God's love, but maybe it's not. Maybe God is walking you through the storm. And he will rescue you. I love the story of Peter in Matthew's gospel. Mark doesn't tell it. John doesn't tell it. I love it because Peter demonstrates great faith. And then almost immediately, he loses it. Nobody else got out of the boat but Peter. Nobody else said, call to me and I'll come to you on the water except Peter. And then in a moment, he forgot Jesus. And he lost his faith. You know, that's a story of Peter. If you look across the Gospels, you see it repeated over and over again. When Jesus said, who do people say I am? They said, some say John the Baptist, some say a prophet. But he said, who do you say I am? And who was the first one to pronounce it? It was Peter. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. You have said right, Peter. I am. Look at that passage one time. It's Matthew 16. I'll tell you the context. Jesus makes that pronouncement to Peter after Peter's made the pronouncement to him. And then it seems like three sentences later, as I recall, Jesus talks about his walk to the cross. And Peter jumps in, ambitious, precocious as ever, and says, Lord, never. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Just moments later, after his remarkable confession, get behind me, Satan. 
Peter, a moment ago, your faith declared that I was son of God. And now in this moment, you're speaking the words of Satan. Do you see yourself, Peter, up here and down here? That was Peter, always. He witnessed Jesus and two of the great prophets on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he said to Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, let's just set up three shrines. Can you imagine anything that is more antithetical to Jesus' ministries than sitting up three shrines? Of course not. But Peter can't help himself. He's overwhelmed by the glory of God, and then he wants to instantiate it in a shrine. Peter, come on now. Your faith is muddled and weak. And then the remarkable occasion where Peter's on the boat and Jesus tells them to cast their net to the other side and they start pulling in such a load of fish that it almost sinks the boat. Peter, impetuous as always, jumps over the side of the boat and swims to the shore where Jesus is. And according to one of the chronologies, a short time later, he's haggling with Jesus about how many times he needs to forgive. Really, Peter? When you've seen all you've seen? Really, Peter, when Jesus has forgiven your stupidity and your lack of faith, really you're asking that question how many times? Of course, you know Jesus' answer. It takes it up another level. But the last thing I want to mention about Peter. When Jesus says, um, you're, all, you're all going to desert me, you know. Peter again. Oh, maybe everybody, but not me, Lord. You know the rest of the story. Peter, up here. Then down here, up here, then down here. Why does that encourage me? Because I'm Peter. I'm Peter. Sometimes I'm up there. Most of the time it's when I'm standing here. (laughs) And then later in the week, I'm down there. Sometimes I'm up here because of the blessing of God, which is very apparent to me. And then when things are going hard and I'm rowing against the water in the waves, I go down there. Thank God for Peter. He's a real disciple. He gives me hope. There's one thing that is clearly a silver lining, scarlet thread, through both of those Gospels and John's Gospel. And it's the main point. Jesus is the Lord of the universe, hands down. It's not the only time in the Gospels he's calmed the storm. He can do it because he's God. Just a couple of inferences from the Old Testament that it's possible the disciples would have thought of then or maybe later. God makes a way through the Red Sea. 
Job and Isaiah say God is the only one who treads on the waters. Psalm 77 says God actually tramples the sea to rescue his people. Why are the disciples so amazed? Because this is a God thing. People don't walk on the water. Faith in this story can be summarized like this. Our faith needs constant fuel. Retreat to find it. We can get caught in the moment and do the wrong thing. Our faith is strengthened when Jesus seems absent. That's when our faith is really strengthened. And finally, we constantly mess up, but God continues to pursue us no matter what. The main point of the story is Jesus is the Lord of the universe, and there's nothing that he can't do. Remember the song we sang at the beginning? There's nothing that our God can't do. That's Jesus. We're about to sing another song, How Great Thou Art, which includes the same theme. So I invite you with me this week. Believe again. Let's pray. Lord of the universe, uh, the one who is of land and sea and sky and air and galaxies beyond. We give you thanks that you're not just out there, but you're right here. We thank you that you're not just almighty, but you're our heavenly father and you're closer than a brother in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We actually thank you, Lord, because we need to be reminded of this. It's not intuitive. We need to thank you for the difficult times. Whatever those times are right now for the people here, we pray that you will remind them that you are present, you are with them even in the midst of the storm, and perhaps you even sent the storm. Give them the faith to continue to walk with you and give them those moments. Lord, we all need those moments. Those moments of retreat and those moments of the miraculous. When you, you show up out of the storm, you walk on the water and our faith is renewed. We pray for that this week. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.